So this next episode was a conversation that made us lose track of time. Because even if the core conversation about transracial adoption doesn't capture your attention, which it should, because nearly 30% of kids who are adopted are adopted across borders or across cultures or race, the trajectory that this conversation takes into why adoption should not be positioned as a solution to abortion absolutely is a perspective you don't want to miss, along with all the other nuggets of wisdom around identity and belonging as well. We are thrilled to be bringing you a conversation with Patrick Armstrong, someone we don't just know from the virtual airwaves now, but thanks to some great opportunities for you, Sasha, to speak with him together in real life as well. So if you want to hear more about his journey, not only as an adoptee, but as an outspoken advocate for adoptees and due to his lived experience, transracial adoptees in particular, you're going to want to listen all the way to the end and then follow him on every platform out there. Welcome to the Dear White Women podcast, the show that helps white women use their privilege to uproot systemic racism without centering themselves in the process. And we are your biracial Japanese and white hosts, Sarah and me, Sasha. Patrick, would you please introduce yourself for our listeners? Of course. Hi, everyone. I am Patrick Samuel Young Armstrong. I use he, him pronouns, and I was born in 1990 as in Korea. And I was adopted by a white family here in America, which makes me a transracial Korean-American adoptee. I host a podcast called The John Chi Show, and it is uh, I co-host that with two other Korean-American adoptees, and we talk about all things that have to do with the Korean adoptee experience. We also like to celebrate and eat some foods and try some snacks from Korea on the show as well. I also host a solo podcast called Conversation Piece, which I recently started, and I'm also a producer and editor on Dear Asian Americans, which is also a podcast, I should say. This is why he's got the voice here, folks. Okay. He's got like the setup and the sound quality. Right. Okay. So, Patrick, when we were on the podcast movement stage in Dallas together back in August, and our mutual friend Jerry Wan of that podcast, Dear Asian Americans, that you just mentioned, asked each of us to talk about our origin story and yours, which also involved one of my favorites, Always Be My Maybe, has stuck with me ever since. So, I would love if you could share that story with our audience. And also because I've wanted you to tell this story in front of Sarah, because I think you guys have similar stories, actually, not involving Always Be My Maybe. But I think that it'll resonate with her for sure. Absolutely. Well, I appreciate you asking. So to get to that point, I'll share just very briefly again, grew up in a white family and a predominantly white community as a transracial adoptee in rural Indiana and internalized a lot of that growing up. I didn't have any racial mirrors. I didn't understand what it meant to be different in that way. And as a family and as a community, we didn't talk about race or things like that. So when you would experience aggressions, when you experience racism, it would always be, oh, that's you took that the wrong way. They were just joking, different stuff like that. And so while I did have a positive adoption experience, I internalized a lot of that feeling, that sentiment, that language, and carried that with me through the first 30 years of my life. And so in 2020, I was living in Chicago with my fiance, now my wife, and we were getting ready to move back to Indiana, Indianapolis specifically. And this was right at the beginning of the pandemic, like really stuff was getting locked down um, or things had just been locked down pretty heavily. We were seeing a lot of violence and 
discriminatory, hateful rhetoric being spewed about Asian Americans. And also we're coming on the heels of the murders of Ahmaud Aubrey, George Floyd, Breonna Taylor. And so all of this was weighing on my mind as we moved back to Indianapolis. And at this time, I had never, uh, because of where I grew up and because of all the internalization that I had done, I never really thought of myself as Asian. I didn't believe that I was. I didn't feel like I fit into that community, that culture. And so this is where I found myself as we were still, uh, or as we were moving back from Chicago. And uh, I don't remember what was happening. I think it was, I believe it was in June. I was, we were sitting on the couch and we were watching a movie and we had just actually recently, probably the day before, had a conversation about having children and starting to build our family, what that looks like and how we were going to go about doing that. And as we were watching this movie, Always Be My Maybe, which you can see on Netflix, it's a rom-com with starring Randall Park and Ali Wong, if you haven't seen it. It's very funny, very moving, but there's a scene in the beginning where they're cooking in the kitchen. And I don't know what it was about this scene, but it just triggered something or unlocked something in my mind. And I looked over to my wife and I just said, how am I going to raise our kids or how are we going to raise our kids to navigate this world as Asian American when I don't know how to do that? I don't even know the first thing about that. And so this just really sat with me as we watch this movie, go to bed, wake up the next morning. This switch that's been flipped has not flipped itself off. For some reason, I'm still thinking about this. So I hop on to my podcast player and I search Asian American in the search bar and Dear Asian Americans pops up. And I'm going to tell this because I haven't told this part in a while, but he had like five reviews on the show. And that's usually what I would judge by like, okay, I'm going to listen to this or I'm not going to listen to it. Like, how long have you been in existence? And what are people saying? But for some reason, I said, okay, I'm going to give this a shot. Hit play. The very first episode was deeply enthralled. I was like, okay, I need to learn more about this. I need, I'm like, this is piquing my interest. I need to continue to pursue this. So I reached out to the guest of that episode. He's a professor at USC and thinking nothing of it, but just explaining my situation, how I grew up and seeing myself as white. I never saw myself as Korean, but I feel like this is something I need to explore. And about a day later, he responded to me and he said, caveated one, I'm not an adoptee, so I don't want to speak to that experience. But I know someone who is also a scholar who is an adopt or who is adopted. And she did this study and he attached the study and it was called Too Korean to be White, Too White to be Korean. And it was about 12 Korean adoptees who grew up in the Midwest. So just exactly where I was at. And as I started to read this study, I was like, OK, I'm, I'm seeing resemblances in, in my experience. And then just I started to cry as I was making my way through. It's like 12 pages long. And I was thinking to myself, I'm like, what is wrong with you? I'm like, why are you crying right now? Like, why are you weeping at a school paper? What's going on here? And it was because for the very first time in my life, I was experiencing and seeing my life and my lived experience being reflected in someone else's experience. And having grown up with a younger sister who was also adopted from Korea, uh, non-biologically related, you think that that would have clicked in my brain at some point, but it didn't. And, and it didn't until that moment. And so very briefly, I like to talk about my story in three parts, rejection, reclamation, and acceptance. And for the first 30 years of my life, I'd been in that rejection state and that moment that moment when I read that study. So I I usually say it's the movie, but it's actually the moment where I read that study that I entered into reclamation. So that's kind of my origin story of how I 
came to do everything that's led me to sit down with both of you all today was really just growing up in that predominantly white community, internalizing whiteness and racism against myself, and then not ever being able to break away from that until I found myself uh, uh, in front of the computer that day. Thank you for sharing that story. First of all, again, because it was even better the second time. But, you know, I think that your story, while it's your story, also will resonate and I'm sure has resonated with so many people who have felt similarly to you, you know, in the same way that you were reading that study and suddenly felt seen and heard. So I really appreciate you sharing that. And, you know, we talk about this work, like the work that Sarah and I do together on Dear White Women, as coming from a place that's deeply personal and one from our own lived experiences. And I know that that's the same for you. So I would love if you could talk about, you know, you mentioned your shows, the podcast that you're involved with, the start and in your introduction. But can you tell us then about, you know, your, you've read that paper. How does the Janchi show come to be then? And and then how do you move past that a conversation piece? Sure. So. I got done reading the study and I had to email uh, the gentleman back who sent it to me. His name's Jonathan. And I was just like, hey, man, I really appreciate you sending me this. It was amazing. And I just thanked him and he responded and he's like, I really appreciate that. He goes, I think you should talk to Jerry, Jerry Wan, and share your story with him. And I was like, that'd be great. I would love if you could put me in touch with him or whatever the case might be. And so just kind of put that to bed. And from there... It wasn't necessarily I was diving into the adoption or the adoptee experience of it. It was very much about like, I don't understand myself as Asian. I need to figure that out. And that's what really my was driving this journey. And so I was reaching out to just a bunch of random people. There was a professor at IUPUI. She's like the first person to teach Asian American history at this college in Indianapolis and just picking her brain, trying to figure out what do I learn? Like, where do I go to learn? I just really came in like an infant. I had no idea what I was looking for. And so I was connecting with some people, meeting a few people who were able to kind of point me in the direction of certain books and and things to look at. And I'll not lie, it was extremely overwhelming. I was like, it was having a hard time piecing together the path and what that was supposed to look like and where my place on that path was. And in between all of these things, I was talking to Jerry and I was listening to Dear Asian Americans. So as I was trying to like figure out what I'm supposed to be doing, Dear Asian Americans was my through line that helped me figure out like my place on this path. And that's when I first started to realize the power of storytelling and like how diverse Asian America is specifically, because I, again, had no idea just really how expansive and again, diverse, how different and unique every single person is that makes up this community. So I'm learning this and Jerry's like, I think he's just, he's kind of like slow playing me. And he eventually is like, Hey, I really like your story. He's like, I do like your story. I think we should tell it. And I, I want you to come on the show if you're open to it. And I'm like, of course. And he's like, he knew I was listening to all of the episodes and the probably a week before I was getting ready to come on to dear Asian Americans. He said, you've probably already listened to, but if not, you're about to listen to two Korean adoptees who I've interviewed on the show. And I was like, Oh, okay, that's cool. And he goes, I think it would be really cool if you three did a show together. And I was like, okay. I was like, so I have wanted to, been thinking about doing a podcast, not about any of this, but been thinking about this before all this started. I'm that would be cool, but I don't know these two people. Like, why would I do that? And he's like, well, I, I just think about it. Listen to their episodes. Think about it. Come on, we'll do your episode and we'll go from there. And so we do that. And probably three or four weeks later, 
probably three weeks later at the beginning of August, he sends out an email to all three of us. And he's like, hey, just wanted to connect you all. You've all been guests on our show or on my show. And I think it would be cool again if you did a show together. Let's sit down and talk about it. And we all joined this Zoom meeting. And I like to tell this part because I think it's hilarious. But I walked away from that Zoom meeting like this is never going to happen. Like this was the most awkward conversation I've ever had. Like there's something there, but I could not do this and be totally fine in my life. But we agreed at the end of that meeting to meet again. And so, and I worked up the courage to meet. I was working at a job where I had to take these meetings on my phone on Zoom in the parking lot in my car. So I'm sitting in the parking lot in my car in the parking lot, having these meetings and just something is clicking about whatever's going on and whatever the conversations that were happening. And we just kind of bonded. And this is myself, Nathan Nowak and KJ Relke, who are my two co-hosts on the John Chi Show. But over that month of August, we really just started to meet more and more frequently, started to meet without Jerry. And we were like, okay, I think we can actually do this. And at the beginning of September, we launched our first episode. We took the week before to figure out what the name of the podcast is going to be. We're going back between the John Chi Show and the Worry Show. Worry Show? Worry is like, I believe it's nation in korean and luckily we went with the john chi show because the other name is taken but we settled on that we got our branding stuff done really quickly and we said all right let's do this and we launched on september 9th our first episode which was we interviewed each other so that was how we got into the podcasting was instead of talking to other people we wanted to talk about our experiences and share our stories first to kind of lead it off and then major shouts to Jerry. He helped us line up our first few guests. Our fourth episode was our first guest interview with Sujin Pate. And she's a scholar. She talks and works in the intersection of the black community and the Asian community and being adopted as well, working within a biracial family. Like she brought, she really opened our eyes to what we could potentially do from a storytelling perspective for this community. I think when we were talking to each other, it was like, okay, yeah, the, this is fun. Like, this is cool. This is a way for us to unpack our stories. But when we heard her share her story, it was like, oh, this is for real. Like, this is not just us having a good time talking to each other. Like, this is people's lives. And so, like, that's what we did. And so we we interviewed a ton of people. We were putting out episodes every week. And at a certain point, we were like, we felt like we were getting away from learning about our own stories. And so we pivoted back and started to release solo episodes where we were really unpacking our own journeys. And this happened right around the time of the Atlanta spa shootings. And so I think one of our first solo episodes was us having this conversation. And it was really me driving this because I was feeling very invisible, not only within the Asian American community, but within the white community and my white family that I grew up with. Like, I didn't feel like people were seeing me as Asian and seeing all of the things that are happening around us in our community to our people. And it just felt like it didn't matter. And it made me really angry. And so we released an episode where I was just going off. I just let everything out, all of the emotions, all of the anger that I was holding inside. And that was the first time that I stepped into healing from not just the perspective of an adoptee, but truly started to find healing and reconciliation with myself as Asian American and Korean. Like, I felt like I'm definitely part of something bigger. And when I was talking about trying to piece together the path and where my place on it was, that was when I started to see that. And that crystallized for me. And so we continued to do that. And that's when I started to pivot and do my own stuff. 
which would eventually lead to conversation piece. But from that point, it was how do I marry the adoptee activism and advocacy with advocating and understanding myself as Asian American? Because, you know, I talked about my initial journey was self-racialization. And then as we started the John Chi show, it became very much about adoptee things, figuring out my place there. And it was really hard to balance the two. And then after Atlanta, I started to find that balance. I started to find myself accepted into Asian American spaces and feeling very comfortable or feeling more comfortable, I should say, not very, but more comfortable sharing my story and advocating for others and putting us out there in these places where it felt like historically we weren't welcome or invited. And so that led to me being more vocal on Instagram, advocating for things like the murder of Christian Hall or to really start advocating for black lives from a place of intersectionality and solidarity as opposed to performance and really understanding what that meant or trying to understand what that meant and which would eventually push me to write more and do things off of social media like my newsletter which was the impetus and birthplace of the Conversation Peace podcast, which is me trying to now step further into not only adoption-related issues, not only Asian-American-related issues, but anything that we want to talk about. Because at the end of the day, I think we can talk about, I've realized we can talk a lot about our traumas and a lot about our pain. And that's great because we need to voice and vocalize those things. But also let's talk about the joys that we have in our communities, the joys and the wins that we get. Like, let's have those types of conversations, too, which there are plenty of people out there doing that right now. But I just wanted to, again, in my own personal evolution, take that next step into doing something like that. So that's kind of how I got from there to here. That's I have so many thoughts, and I really appreciate you sharing that. Like, the first thought I had was how powerful it is to realize that tears really tell us where our truth is and that you felt it and then really wholeheartedly took this on as an intellectual exercise and really ran with it is incredible to recognize that and be like, I've got to go all in. But the other thing that I thought about as you were talking was my background in positive psych makes me think about um, this study that showed that there are three ways that people process emotions and process things. And it's you either talk about it, write about it, or you think about it. And if you're just in your own space, analyzing it in your mind and just thinking about it, it tends to lead to this negative cycle. But if you're writing or talking, you're really able to analyze in a completely different way in a much healthier, productive way. And I feel like your natural outlets with your writing, your newsletter, your podcast, I mean, you listen to what is good. And it's so amazing to hear when people's stories align with the science and like to see this path of yours evolving is really powerful. I also relate to the Atlanta spa shooting because I had this feeling of I am biracial after that point because my life had been segmented into living under my Japanese mom's roof first half of my life, second half of my life, living with my white husband in really white parts of America with white presenting kids. And then it was like a whole other cool. Now I can really meld both halves and show up in both places and feel like I can belong in any circle that I want to show up in, including Asian and white spaces. So then to come around to this other point that I really, really would love to talk to you about, because this is another point of where I personally am curious. You know, you're you talk about being a vocal advocate for adoptees. And just a short version of it is my mom, who is the Japanese immigrant mom that I always talk about on the show, was adopted. And she was adopted by her siblings. It's a super long story, one that I want to write about one day. But the short of it is she grew up knowing her biological family and spent time with them. Didn't know that she was adopted. Like there was it was young enough, like three or four. And then later on she was told that like that she was adopted and all this sort of stuff. But in reflection, she has said, well, two things. One, 
you mentioned you and your sister didn't talk about the identity experience. I went out to a Japanese hot spring with my mom and her two biological sisters. They were in their what, 70s at that point, 60s and 70s. And I was like, so what was it like? Like you two were older. You were probably like seven years old when she disappeared from your life. What'd you think? And they all just blankly looked at me and each other and then paused and said, we've never talked about it until right now. Wow. But you hang out all the time. Like, I don't even understand how this is not a conversation. And the other part of it is that because she grew up knowing them, though, she always felt like she was loved. And I think in your scenario and a lot of adoptions that are not open adoptions, like we'll get to the transracial part of it later, but just this process of adoption, how did that affect your identity and your sense of belonging in general? Sure. So I talked to, I characterized this earlier, but I view my specific experience with adoption as wholly positive. Like I didn't experience the types of abuse or certain traumas that I think a number of adoptees go through that's not really talked about that lends to the negative experience and also this idea in the adoption sphere that a negative experience is a one-off. I do actually think it's more common than a specifically positive experience. But the way adoption, I mean, here's the thing. I don't think I can talk about the way adoption formed and shaped my identity without the transracial part of it. Because I think that at the end of the day, we were raised in a one of the ways our parents were told to raise us, even in the 90s, was assimilation, which I think as Asian Americans, a lot of us know about whether we're adopted or not, is like the a way for us to survive and a way for us to be a part of this country is to assimilate, to leave our roots, to leave those things behind. And that's the way that they raised us. They raised us colorblind. You know, part of the aggressions that I experienced would come from my parents and families and friends because it would be when I would feel like something was because I've always been pretty emotional, to be honest, and uh, that definitely stems from my adoption. But when I would feel like somebody was being aggressive towards me, I would be told that this was I was taking it the wrong way, gaslit in that way, I guess. And because of that, like I instead of feeling like a fully formed person, instead of feeling like I was who I was supposed to be, I felt like I had to put this mask on and, and become an actor, essentially. And so while I did feel belonging, while I did feel love, and I still have a great relationship with my adoptive family who supports me on this journey in a myriad of ways, I was always, and I will say always, I was always acting in a way. So specifically, I feel like I'm generally very introverted, but I display extroverted tendencies. And I took that as a paraphrase of a Tracy Ellis Ross quote from another podcast. But when she said that, I'm like, oh, that's what I've been doing. Like, I've been wearing this mask and putting on this different, there are putting on this facade in order to navigate my surroundings, even though I didn't realize that and couldn't articulate that as a younger person. But I never felt like I didn't belong to like my family in that way. But I think that also lends itself to kind of the saviorism aspect of adoption, especially from a transracial perspective, which is why I feel like, again, even though we still have a great relationship and I don't think it's based on that anymore, it's hard to separate even the sense of belonging and how I felt before and how my identity was formed from that regard, from that transracial perspective. Because it just, it shades every single interaction that I've ever had even though we never talked about it until the past two years. Can you talk a little bit more about transracial adoption and shorthand for those listening? They call it TRA, TRA for short, right? Because I think there's a big history here with transracial adoption. And I know in the States, like in, 
it was never an issue. Like people really didn't think about it until 1972 when the National Association of Black Social Workers issued this statement that they were very much against the placement of black children in white people's homes. And the thinking was that white families were like not ready to raise a black child in a racist society. Like they couldn't teach them how to deal with racism. And like what you just said, sort of saviorism, they, they thought that these black, white transracial adoptions were done with the benefit of the white family in mind rather than for the benefit of the child. So it was really only in the 1990s, like in the mid 1990s, that interracial adoption was allowed again, or that these adoption agencies that were receiving federal funds could no longer say no to adoptions based solely on racial difference. And so you mentioned some of the things like you felt like you were being gaslit and, and there were these experiences. Can you walk us through either an example or talk about what TRA means for you personally or why you feel so compelled? To, I mean, you have a podcast about this whole concept of transracial adoption, like you really advocate for it. So what is it about that from your lived experience and your understanding? So uh, actually an anecdote I haven't shared in a, in a while, but something I think is very foundational. Actually, I'll share two. So as a younger child, my parents did make an effort to take us to like a Korean convention. I don't remember where it was, what it was about or what it was for, but they took us there to be like, okay, here's a way you can, you know, connect or retain part of your heritage. And from what I can discern, I probably, I don't, I don't think I had a very good time. I don't think that I wanted to be there. I felt like, again, you know, there was no Korean or Asian anything for me to leading up to that. So it felt foreign to me to be in that space, from what I can remember, at least. And I think that experience turned my parents away from, okay, we should do this to, or we should think about this to, okay, he doesn't want that. So we're not going to force it on him. And that's problematic and harmful as from a transracial perspective specifically, because I think adoptive parents need to be willing to provide opportunities for the adoptee in their lives to engage with their culture if they're transracial adoption. Even if the adoptee says, no, you have to be willing to provide those opportunities to continue to provide those opportunities and be willing to actively engage in those opportunities yourself to show that you're learning, to show that that's something that matters to you because it should. And from my perspective, like I did not have those opportunities, one, because maybe because of my actions and attitudes when we went to that event, cause them to think that, okay, we don't need to do this. The pressure or the information that they're getting from the adoption agencies telling them assimilate. It's the easiest way. That's the best way to do it. That's what we've always told people to do, clouding that judgment as well. But because of that, like that set me, not having those opportunities set me up to continue to internalize whiteness and racism against myself, which leads me to college. So I go to college, I go to Purdue University, there are a lot of South and East Asian students that go there. It's a huge engineering school, but a lot of international students there. And college in general, they say it's the time where you explore your stuff and figure out who you are and do all this. Well, in college, unfortunately, I had done so much internalization that I didn't do any of that. I would say that I, if you asked me then, I would say that I was doing it, but I wasn't. I was really staying in my comfortable circle of my friends that I already knew. Like if they made friends, okay, I'll be friends with those people, but keeping it within my bubble. And one day I was in a lecture class and I was sitting there just minding my own business, sitting by myself, waiting for class to start. And I, out of the corner of my eye, I see a girl walking up to me. I clock her as, uh, identify her as being East Asian. And she starts to like greet me or say something to me in a language that I don't recognize or understand because I only speak English at this point. 
and I still only speak English. I should probably caveat say I'm still only an English speaker. And I remember thinking to myself, okay, here's a chance for you to engage with this person. And then like, this is your first step, you know, like in the force awakens, these are your first steps, Ray. Like this is your first step or I can continue to stay comfortable. Like this is making me feel awkward. Like you don't have, don't do this. And unfortunately I chose the latter. And the reason that I talk about this specific experience is because one, it not only shows how much harm I was doing to myself by denying this person, this interaction, but two, I was also potentially outwardly harmful to another person who may have just been seeking community or just didn't know anyone or is just trying to be a friend or be just kind. And my internalization drove me to respond in that way. And that it's just indicative of the why I think it's important that you have to have those opportunities because you never know how much a person is going to take that in, take that to heart, make that part of their identity and how long that will take them to unravel, to unpack, to get beyond this. Because I'm a transracial adoptee who came to this at 30. I know plenty of transracial adoptees who have not come to to 40s or till they're in their 40s or their 50s. I know a lot more adoptees now who are doing it at a younger age. But how much harm is that causing us to wait so long to start going down that path? And then at that point, you know, we've also had the negative experiences with our communities of origin, our cultures of origin. And so it makes it even more difficult to find ways to how do we fit here? Or do we even belong? And it leaves us isolated. And so that moment as a child and then that moment in college, I think really bookend that experience of why I think it's important to for adoptive parents to have a better understanding of transracial adoption prior to the process, going through the process. Because it's so easy to say, oh, that's not something that they want to do. We'll leave it on the back burner. We'll, we won't worry about it. But we don't think about how that's going to affect us in the future. And I think that plays into the infantilization of adoptees overall throughout the narrative of adoption. And so I hope I answered your question. I think I'm going in the right direction, but there's a lot of inflection points, but those two definitely are ones that stick out to me. So I really appreciate you sharing those anecdotes because I think, you know, you were talking about sort of the power of storytelling. And I think that those anecdotes and how intentional you have sort of walked through those and unpacked those with regards to who you are now, who you were then, and those through lines, right? Tell us so much more than just, you know, simply stating certain things could. So I really appreciate you sharing that. I also want to talk about, you know, you mentioned the Korean convention, right? And I want to sort of draw a through line from that to your recent trip to Korea, right? Because you recently had the chance to go to Korea on a program for adoptees, which was the first time I think that you had ever traveled to Korea. And I know we could spend like probably a whole podcast episode on this because I've listened to several of yours about this and I've loved them. But can you tell us what that was like, right? Being in Korea for the first time for you. Yeah. So I mentioned, you know, I talk about my story in three parts, rejection, reclamation, acceptance right before. So Months, a few months before this past APAM, I should say, the Asian Pacific American Heritage Month, I went from reclamation into acceptance and found a way to start fully accepting myself as who I am, a Korean and Asian American adoptee. And so I've been moving through my life that way and thinking, oh, I've hit this peak. 
and I've hit this, uh, the mountaintop. I've reached it. I'll build my platform from here, thinking I had gone as far as I could. And then I get this opportunity to go to Korea. And I've talked about it a lot. You can listen to the John Chi show to really hear my thoughts about it. But anyways, I was a little hesitant. And one of my hesitations to go was because I didn't know, I don't know the language. I know a couple phrases and that's what I went there with. But again, like this experience of being an adult adoptee who's unpacking these things and trying to figure out a way to survive or not to survive, but feel a sense of belonging in your community and culture of origin. While I started to finally feel that for myself, I was worried that going back to Korea would knock me out of it again, make me feel like, oh, I'm not going to feel like I belong here. It was scary to think about going in, but I was like, you know what? People kept telling me no expectations. So I went with no expectations as much as I could. And being in Korea physically was amazing. And I share that part of it because it was amazing that I found ways and found a way to not feel that outsider feeling and to finally feel myself lose the mask. That performance that I've been putting on for 30 years, I realized in a moment that, oh my gosh, I'm not doing that right now. And it was transformative again. And the reason I bring the language thing up is because the thing that kicked that off was walking through the streets of Seoul and I'm like, okay, I need a coffee because if you have not been to Korea, there is just coffee literally everywhere. They want you to drink coffee. They want you to be on the go. Everyone walks super fast, which is great because I also walk super fast. So that it's another thing that made me feel like I fit in. But so we go to get coffee and I walk up to the barista and I'm just like, Anyaseo, and I say hello. And he responds to me in Korean. No, doesn't look up or anything, just responds to me in Korean. And I was like, okay, I'm assuming that he's asking me what I want, but I don't know what he said. And then I was just like, I'm just going to respond in English and see how this goes. And so I just responded with our order in English. And he goes, okay. And then I just handed him my card and he ran it. And I said, da," uh, which is thank you. And he responded in kind and never batted an eye. And while this seems like an innocuous moment, it was, I'm not kidding you, the most pivotal thing that I think has probably ever happened to me outside of getting married to my wife. <laughs> because I was like, that fear that I had of not feeling accepted by Korea went away. And I do want to preface or I do want to caveat that this is my experience. Not everybody has that experience as Korean adoptees. Like I know plenty who have went to Korea and are like, this is not for me. This is not it. Feel that outsider feeling and are made to feel that way. And I'm really privileged and fortunate that I didn't have that because in that moment, I felt that wash away from me. And I, that's just how I operated from that moment for going forward. And all of my experiences after that made me realize, oh, there's so much further I have to go from a self-acceptance piece. Like, I'm not done. I may have reached a mountaintop, but there's another mountain for me to climb in order for me to really, truly continue to develop as a person and as this person that I finally accepted as being me. And so Korea was amazing for that fact because it showed me I think when you go on a journey like this, it's really easy to hit a point and say, I'm done now, which is okay, which is totally okay if somebody wants to do that. I would not discourage anyone from being from getting to that point. But Korea showed me that I can go further. There's a reason that I'm operating in this way. And if I want to, I can push that further, take that the next step. So learn the language, do different things to get more involved. And like these blocks, I think that I've had because of 
the way I grew up because of my experiences as a transracial adoptee that were keeping me from wanting to do that. Korea helped me finally pull those away. So even though I had entered into acceptance of myself, there's still bits and pieces that are either roadblocks or obstacles or hurdles that I'm finding ways to start to pull down. And Korea was, Korea helped me to do that. You know, I've heard you talk about Korea a couple of times, and I think that I love sort of what I hear in your voice, right? And how you talk about Korea, because I do think it is, you know, for you, this was so powerful and so like pivotal and moment, you know, I think there is so much so far, right, that you can take that experience from in Korea and move, you know, with it. So I can't wait to see where you go, you know, from here. And I want to go back actually to something that you said right before we started talking about Korea, which you were talking about sort of the infantilization of adoptees. And so I heard you talk about this on conversation piece. And one of the things that you said in this conversation was that adoptees are often seen as children. I mean, I think after all, when someone says adoptee, what's that image that comes to mind? And I think typically, right, it's typically a white child being adopted by a white family and everyone's, you know, really happy, right? But that adult adoptees are often overlooked or not understood because you don't fit in that narrative, right? And I thought this was such a powerful point. And I hadn't even really internalized how we see adoptees, you know, quite like that before. So can you tell us a little bit more about this? Sure. So I think it it all goes back to the narrative surrounding adoption. And so you think about something like the Indian Child Welfare Act, which is another like two, you brought up the Black Social Worker Statement. You know, this is another foundational piece, something that I'm still learning more and more about, but sets the tone. These two things set the tone of specifically white parents feeling like we can take children and bring them in. And so I think the infantilization part starts in this area where it's we're looking at children, not even white children, but specifically children of color of and saying we are saving you from whatever existence that we feel is not what you should be having. And we're going to assimilate you into our culture and we're going to lose that. And so that's the way that I feel like adoption has been viewed for so long. And then you go post Korean war where the Holtz are bringing Korean children home first, they're mixed race children, and then it's full blooded Korean children. And it's at the end of the day, it's always, it's usually or generally infants. And so when the media is latching on to these types of events, that's the picture that you see. Or you might you might see a three, four, five-year-old. You could see even up to where it's probably eight years old where they're, but they're still children. And so that's the face of adoption for a long time. And when these things are being formalized, being industrialized, that is who we see is, and that's why they put the label of saviorism on it is because we are saving children from quote unquote shithole countries. You know, that's the mindset that we have is that if we get them young enough, we can purge them of these defects or flaws. And as we grow older, the reason that we want to remain looking at children or picturing it and viewing adoption through the lens of a child is because childhood generally speaks to innocence, speaks to it's usually just good, you know, and that's the way that we think about children. But even as you get become a teenager, you know, you start to lose that veneer. You like parents talk about teenagers all the time and how tough it is to be to deal with teenagers. My wife is an eighth grade teacher, English teacher. So we have this conversation a lot. And 
that starts to wear away. We're still tethered to childhood by the fact that we probably still live with our parents or we're still involved in the home in some way. But as soon as we become adults and we start to question and we start to push counter narratives to what we have always heard about adoption, what we've always how we've always viewed adoption, it instantly becomes, well, we now have to invalidate this person. No, you've got it wrong. No, there are, I know plenty of it. This is the one that I get all the time. I know plenty of adoptees who had a great experience. You know, you're we're we're made to we're siloed people who don't have that experience or people who speak out against the way adoption is typically thought of are siloed and told you're the outlier, you're the one-off, your voice doesn't matter because look at all these children. And so the reason we go back to infantilization, the reason that agencies and, and different people, organizations that help facilitate adoptions go back to infantilization is because that's where the goodness in it lies. And I'm not saying there aren't ever situations where an adoption could or should be necessary, but the reason that we look at it and the reason that infantilization continues and continues to happen is because we think about adoption as family making when generally it is family separation. Like the root of adoption is in separating a family for in most cases because we're not looking at adoption as why we're not asking ourselves, why is this necessary? Why are we doing this? We're not examining the systemic issues that cause someone to say, I need to give my child away for X, Y, or Z. And so when we erase all of that, when we don't think about all that, it's the easiest to think of us as children, as babies, as you will always be this. And But as soon as we become adults, as soon as we question this narrative that we've always been given, that we've always been told our lives are based on like my parents the story they told me the story that they were told is that my korean family gave me up because they needed they couldn't take care of me and they wanted me to have a better life is that true i don't know i've heard plenty of people say that that's been their story come to find out that's not the real reason and so it's easy for the government for private adoption agencies to show us as children because that keeps it moving and because it takes our eyes away from what actually is happening, why are we asking people to give their children up? Why do people feel like they have to make that choice? We're not asking that question because we're talking about babies, babies that need saving. My mind was completely blown. And I appreciate both of you for asking and answering that question because holy shit, you're right. And I, I hadn't thought of it that way. But I also think that this kind of ties into the question that I think might be a little juicy and I want to ask, because I think you'll have thoughts. In these times post-Dobbs, with the dismantling of Roe v. Wade, right, a lot has been made about positioning adoption as the alternative to abortion. And based on what you just said, again, like you're not talking about the systemic issues about what is making adoption necessary. So I think based on some of the feeds that I've seen, you have some thoughts about this. What do you think about this whole idea of positioning adoption as the answer to abortion? I mean, I wholeheartedly stand against it, I guess. I'll start there. Like, I don't think there is alternative because they're two completely separate things. Abortion is a healthcare issue. Adoption is a familial issue, a family separation issue. I'm going to go ahead and use that language here on out. And so right there, I think that huge disconnect is, for me, one of the main reasons why it doesn't make any sense to make that comparison. I think another thing is for adoptees, like, you know, I talk about us being silenced as, as adults and sidelined. This is one of the reasons is because when 
people want to push on legislation that specifically, you know, removes the right of a woman to do what or a person who is capable of bearing a child to do whatever they want to do with their body it and removes the choice of being able to access literally life-saving health care we get brought into this or adoptees who have had positive experiences get brought into this as the champion or the poster person of this issue and says well there's adoption like oh you want to have an abortion well you could just go through the process of pregnancy and then just give your child away and sight unseen no problem like because again this narrative is like there are x amount of people who are willing and ready to adopt who will do any drop every single thing that they want to do to bring your baby in to have a baby to do whatever it is to make a family in their situation and specifically it like the argument falls apart when you look at the statistics of people in foster care how many kids are in foster care how many children are in orphanages or homes right now who they're not lining up to adopt or who they're not lining up to foster and those children are generally older they're in their teens specifically in foster care like they're in their teens those children are also probably black latina indigenous most likely. And it's just that it puts us in the really, really terrible position of having to be the voice of why we shouldn't do call it or call it an alternative because the left, so progressives, will latch onto this and they'll use adoption as this and they'll use those statistics to say, well, you're not adopting these children. Well, that I also have, it's problematic for me as well to come from the other side because we shouldn't be being used as props because we're also not talking again. We're not talking about the root, the question of why adoption is even happening in the first place. And again, I'll go back to my first point. Like they're two completely separate issues. So if they're, they get compared and an adoption gets presented as an alternative to abortion, just based on the simple fact that it exists, that it is a concept that is available, not because of any logic, not because it makes sense that, oh, you can adopt your child. Well, you still have to go through pregnancy to get to that point. You still might need or most likely will need health care to help you get to that point. And so, like, what are we talking about? That's I guess that's where it comes for me. And I don't know if I'm articulating this super well, but it's just that I feel like they're so unrelated that for me and this like coming into my own as an advocate and talking about activism and things like that. Like it just it loses all weight on both sides when we're brought in. And then another thing, too, I think, is the comparative piece. I think we do so much comparison and it really lends to what we experience as Asian Americans, the model minority myth. Like we now get pitted against other people or even other adoptees who have had a good experience or might be or I was going to say pro-life, but I'm going to say anti-choice, anti-choice. And, you know, it, it just it sets us up to dissent against one another when we should be having a conversation, whether we agree or not, but discussing the reasons why we're reaching this point in the first place. Like with abortion, we're starting to talk about that actual reason why we're here with adoption. We're not there yet. We're not having the conversation about why we're still having the conversation about what, and you know, I would love to get away from what and get into why as we move forward. And that's, you know, hopefully one of my goals over the course of my life.
I hope that made sense. I was just all over the place with that. No, that was, Sorry. that. Was, well, I'm already <laughs> like the meme of abortion is healthcare and adoption is family separation is the family separation issue. That, that was very, very powerful and very insightful to be seen and to have the balanced perspective of not being appreciated, not appreciating being used as a prop, I think is a very valid point. Because I guess my follow-up question is what would be some of the policies then? And I'm just riffing here. Like it would be healthcare, right? Everybody needs healthcare. It would be lifting people, families out of poverty so that they can feed their children and feel like they can keep their families together along with the housing. And like, there's some systemic issues that our society needs to take a good look hard, like look at for themselves, ourselves and fix. Because maybe like you said, then we might be in a situation where we can create the families that we want to have and be able to sustain them living in a way that we can like live in humanity. You know, as you were saying, both of you were talking, right? I kept thinking about a, you know, how I think that both sides try to position this issue differently, right? But both sides fail when they do that. And it continues to come back to the concept of this assumes, right, even to try and place those two issues opposite each other assumes like a level of social safety nets and like, you know, that we do not have in this country and we have never, you know, been able to hold on to in this country for a whole host of systemic reasons here. So I really, I found that as powerful as Sarah did too, because I think that it's so easy to create a straw man, right? And be like, well, here we go. This is it. And to have people feel satisfied with that. But your point about being a pawn um, and having this then artificially created dissent within your own community, right, is so damaging on so many levels. So I really appreciate you sharing that. Clearly, we could talk to you for hours, but you know, I would love for you to share where our listeners can find more of your wisdom in all forms, right? The writing, the talking, <laughs> all of it. Well, I appreciate that. And I just want to, before I say that, I just want to thank you for giving me the opportunity to come on here and share. Like, that's been my goal. So I'll talk about LinkedIn and Instagram where you can find me. But that's been my goal since stepping into these platforms is how do we reach other people who maybe don't know about this conversation? Like we need to have this conversation, not only with ourselves, but with everybody that we can have it with. So I really appreciate you giving me the opportunity to come on your platform. Y'all are freaking amazing. So I'll leave it at that. But you can find me on Instagram at Patrick in the world. You can find me on LinkedIn as well. They're kind of interchangeable, but I probably say I'm more active on LinkedIn now. That's slash Patrick in the world as well. If you want to find me there, you can also listen to my other podcasts. That's at John Chi Show on Instagram, johnchishow.com online. Conversation piece is really directly tied to my newsletter. So and my other stuff. So just follow me on Instagram and you'll be able to find that. And then, yeah, you can hear me on Dear Asian Americans as well. So if you want to follow them at Dear Asian Americans or DearAsianAmericans.com. Fantastic. Thank you so much. <laughs> Thank you. You've just listened to the Dear White Women podcast with your hosts, Sarah and Misasha. Yes, we're on social media. And yes, you can hire us to do talks about our book. But the biggest thing, don't forget to sign up for our newsletter to receive our free materials. Head over to DearWhiteWomen.com to get on the list. <laughs>